Hey everyone, I'm coming at you live from Prague. First, so sorry for the delay. Second, because I finished up this episode while I was traveling, you'll notice that some parts of the podcast sound a little different. Home mic versus travel mic. No need to adjust your headphones, it's me, not you. If you're an audiophile who just wants to hear my dulcet tones in high quality and doesn't mind waiting a little longer, I'll be uploading a cleaned up version of this episode when I'm back stateside. Third, if somehow this is the first episode you're listening to, welcome! You might want to go back and start with episode one, The Newbie, but live your life how you choose. If you're feeling really ambitious, you can go all the way back to episode one of season one, Bowtie, but I know we're all busy people. Finally, if you've enjoyed this series and want to support this podcast, you can donate at our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com, by finding the donate button in the upper right-hand corner. This helps cover costs like website hosting, equipment, and giving a little something to the actors. Thanks again so much for listening. Here's the show. Previously on Serial Dater. I had one foot out of the city when I matched with a young man named Calvin. Where are you? I'm in Glasgow. I'm in Edinburgh now. And even worse, I live in the south. Like England. Of course I'd come to Edinburgh. Calvin pulled me into a doorway and kissed me on the mouth. Fuck, was he good at kissing. I was anxious to see him again. I'm busy the next couple of weeks, but what about February? The second weekend in February was Valentine's Day. I now have to work this upcoming weekend. So I'm getting the feeling that you are continuing avoiding talking to me. He never replied. Hey there, I started nearly two months after we'd last spoken. Bit mad. I was just thinking about you. What exactly were you thinking about me? I was thinking about how I should have explained why I abruptly stopped messaging you. Sorry, I did like you. I would very much like to still see you again. Not having heard from Calvin for a full week, I decided that I might have to make my own closure. I'm coming to Glasgow. I'd really, really like to see you. I'm excited to see you tomorrow. Why did it get so intense? On our first date, I started falling in love with you. I just really thought you wouldn't like me anymore. You should come to Brighton, but I don't want you to say you're going to come if you don't want to. No, I want to come to Brighton. I decided I would text him once a day until he booked his tickets. I even created a hashtag for his upcoming visit, hashtag HotScottSouth. That is a mighty hashtag. Hashtag HotScottSouth day three. Greetings from London, come south already. Hashtag HotScottSouth day nine. You don't get any cleverness today because it's all gone into my paper and all that's left in my head is cotton candy. Hashtag HotScottSouth day 18. Boo. So I need you to leave this for a while. Today we had a memorial service for a friend who killed himself last week. And I left it, which was hard. But now a new weird deadline was approaching. The Fulbright end of year meeting was going to be in Glasgow. I booked a ticket to arrive in Glasgow a few days before the meeting started. And just five days before I was supposed to head to Glasgow, things got messy. The silence is killing me. You're looking for a story and I don't want to be in it. Find what you're looking for. I'm not a part of this anymore. I really don't want a big back and forth about this. So please don't drag it out. I don't know about you, but I find it reassuring to hear people talk about neurochemistry. I suppose it's a little uncanny to try and reduce our very consciousness to a series of electrochemical impulses whipping their way around our brains. Certainly when we talk about positive emotions, happiness, pleasure, satisfaction, it can kind of sap the magic out of it. But when it comes to the emotions that can overwhelm us, fear, anger, sadness, despair, reducing these things to the neurological processes that they are makes them seem, to me anyway, a little less scary. I'm not saying that when I'm feeling down I just think, you're probably just experiencing an overabundance of cortisol or norepinephrine and instantly calm down, or even feel significantly better. But during moments when things feel overwhelming, remembering that the feeling of overwhelm is just that, a feeling, is not unuseful. Applying the logic of rationality and neuroscience to things as wily and unwieldy as our emotions, especially our most intense negative emotions, gives me, if not a port in the storm, at least a sturdy mass to hold on to. Neurochemistry also helps explain other things, too, like how we go into a kind of hyper-aware yet also kind of removed mental state when we experience a shock. It helps me explain how, 15 minutes after Calvin sent his final message, I was able to craft a reply. Message received. Good luck. For what it's worth, I love you. I won't wait for you anymore, but I will be here. I don't know if the color in my face changed, or if I became quiet, or if I gave any outward indication at all that anything had happened. I stayed at the picnic bench while my friends finished lunch. Maybe I ate something too? That seems hard to believe, but who knows. 
and even followed them back inside the library to continue studying. It was only when I was about to go back through the turnstiles that I stopped, finally aware that I was not going to be able to go back and study. Two of my friends and course mates had yet to go back in, Grace and Amy. Grace and I had been in a study group together during our first term. She was quick and funny and cynical in a way that made me feel like we were kind of kindred spirits. Amy I knew a little less well, if only because we hadn't been study buddies. She was a ballroom dancer and had that grace that dancers do. And when me and the rest of the history cohort had stumbled drunkenly into a dance that she had put on just before Christmas, we'd been celebrating at the end of the term, she attempted to teach me how to samba, or was it salsa? Again, I was drunk. I'd had more than a few pints with both of them, enough over the last few months that they each knew a little bit about Calvin. So when I said, sorry, I don't think I can go back in, Calvin just kind of shat all over me. I didn't need to explain what it meant. And then, as if saying it out loud made it more real than it had been a moment before, my face crumpled and I began to cry in the middle of the vestibule of the library. It was a strange sensation. I had done plenty of crying in the months previous, sure, but almost always I had been able to save it until I was alone in my room or on a train by myself. I certainly hadn't done any crying in front of other people, and the fact that it was coming whether I wanted it to or not was overwhelming, and no amount of neurochemistry logic was going to help that. Instead, what happened next still strikes me as one of the most amazing and generous things that happened to me all year. Without hesitating for a second, Amy stepped over to me and threw her arms around me and let me sob into her shoulder for a full minute. We should all be so lucky to have someone like Amy around, someone who, when you really need it, will literally stand you up. Eventually, I gained a kind of temporary composure, wiped my eyes, and told Grace and Amy that they could go back, that I'd be okay. Saw that, said Grace. We're taking you to the pub. I'm Charlie Beckerman, and it's time to pour ourselves one last pint of Serial Dater UK Edition. It's just Episode 7, The Artist. East Slope Pub is probably the least nice of the three campus pubs at the University of Sussex. Our mainstay on campus was Falmer Bar, which was located conveniently between the library and the bus stop, had lots of big tables, and, though it was located inside of one of Sussex's more boring, brutalist edifices, almost faked the homey, lived-in feel of a real British pub. The IDS bar, which is located inside the Institute of Development Studies, is kind of a nothing burger unless you are an IDS student. East Slope Pub, conveniently located near Sussex's vaguely dystopian-looking East Slope student accommodation, felt on the inside a little like a first attempt at a budget set for rent. Outside, it had a broad, sloped roof and looked vaguely pagoda-ish. And Amy, Grace, and I sat in the sun, and I proceeded to drink. Almost like a wake, my friends from my cohort came in succession to have a pint and commiserate. It's an unsung talent of the British, perhaps. Commiseration. None of them tried to tell me that everything was going to be okay, or that he was no good, or that I should just forget about him. At the time, it was lost on me, but now it seems that the British co-misery that my friends extended to me that day, and in the days that followed, was in a strange way parallel to the bits of Buddhism I had gathered. They were practicing radical empathy. They were suffering alongside me. They were not retreating into thoughts of the past or the future. They were remaining firmly in the present. That just sucks, one of them said. Need another drink? By the time Nathan drove me home, I was in a boozy bubble wrap cocoon. In the first few drafts of this episode, I spent a lot of time in the immediate aftermath of the final missive from Calvin, processing my feelings by trying to process his. But in my attempts to try and focus more on my own feelings at the time, I come up with not a lot. My chats from around then have a kind of muted sadness to them, though there are reports of some ugly crying. This, I think, is maybe one of the worst results of Calvin's final gaslighting. It made me doubt so much. My perception of the whole situation, the amount of time I'd poured into him, the energy, the, sorry, gonna say it, love. My very sense of self was being called into question. Don't mean a thing 
but also, I think I did a lot of pushing to keep myself going. Calvin's fuck-off arrived on June 21st. On June 22nd, Belle and Sebastian were having a concert at the Royal Albert Hall in London, and though I tried to scare up someone to go with me, I ended up going alone. It was an amazing concert. I got this close to Stuart Murdoch. See a pic online. But also, between the highs of the music and the weirdness of Stuart's Scottish accent not being entirely unlike Calvin's, and the lows of wishing I had someone to share the experience with, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. On June 23rd, I began a remote part-time job writing about the 2016 election for the website Bustle.com. This happened to be the same day as the Brexit referendum. I went to bed thinking it would never pass in a million years, and woke up on June 24th to it having gone through. The next morning, I attempted to purchase my ticket back to the States, now that I didn't have any romantic reason to stay, and hoped to take advantage of the crashing pound. But the joke was on me. American Express gave me an exchange rate close to what it had been the day before. People wandered around very liberal Brighton in a daze. The city had voted 68% to remain in the EU. It was an eerie foreshadowing of America's electoral doom not five months away. On the morning of the 25th, I got on a train to London, and an older man sitting across from me said, Lovely day for a train ride, not in Europe. You've got the wrong guy, I said. It was difficult to tell whether this major emotional rift came at the worst possible time or the best possible time. On the one hand, I was busy with research and dissertation writing, and the new bustle job. On the other hand, I was heading to London on the 25th because I was catching a train to Glasgow for the Fulbright year-end meeting. Moreover, I had brazenly booked my ticket up to Scotland a few days early, hoping that Calvin would rally last minute like he had every other time, and I might get to spend a few nights with him. Now I had three nights on my hands in Glasgow, and no Calvin to occupy it. But let us not say that the universe does not provide. It turned out that fellow Fulbrighter Bill had been planning a trip back into the Highlands in the days just before the meeting. Within 24 hours of getting Calvin's final message, I had been added into the trip, along with two of our other friends, Dave and Nathan. And thank God, because those kids couldn't have planned their way out of a waste paper basket. In short order, we threw together an itinerary, booked a rental car and places to stay, mustered in Glasgow, and headed for the hills. In my ongoing list of things that will distract from a broken heart, let me add attempting to drive a manual car with a stick shift on the wrong side. For extra distraction, drive on narrow, one-lane Scottish country roads. The woman at the rental agency told me to keep an eye out for the periodic turnouts, and that if I came head-to-head with another car, I might have to back up to let the oncoming car pass. All told, though, I only nearly curbed the car once, and that was in my first 20 minutes of driving the damn thing. By the end of our trip, I felt almost affectionate about our Seat Leon. The trip into the Highlands was just as exciting as the previous time. We visited the Devil's Pulpit, located just outside of Glasgow, and scaled a random mountain we found on the side of the motorway near Glencoe. We stayed in glamping pods in Kinloch Levin, and in a former schoolhouse in a village called Dalavik. In one of the Otter stops, we drove out past Oban to a town called Elenabech, where we then took a ferry, it was a motorboat, across to the island of Easdale, a former slate quarry that felt like it was located on the edge of the world. It was unreal and peaceful and a good place to feel like one had briefly escaped. In many ways, this was the perfect way to process what I was going through. I had good friends at the ready, but we would all periodically wander off on our own. But as soon as I'd spent enough time with my own thoughts, I could come back to the group. By this point, my thoughts were mainly centering on trying to reason out what the fuck had happened. How had we gone from I'll be there before you know it on May 3rd to I'm not a part of this anymore on June 21st? You might be shocked to learn that I came up with a few theories. Theory number one, he's a sociopath. This was suggested to me a few times, I think by well-meaning friends who were searching for a way to make sense of his all-over-the-map actions, how he could be so hot one minute and so absent the next. There's a certain tidiness to this idea, 
a kind of easy, one-size-fits-all explanation that accounts for the unkindness of his various silences and the meanness of his final message, especially when placed alongside all the good things he'd thrown my way. I have two pushbacks to this. The first is an idea I'm stealing from the first season of Regular Serial, when Sarah Koenig starts to doubt Adnan's story and asks a criminal defense lawyer who runs the University of Virginia Innocence Project. What if he is this amazing sociopath and it's just like I'm being played, you know? I mean, I don't get that sense, but he, I mean, he's really charming. He's really smart. He's really, he's funny. The lawyer laughs and says, So I think like the odds of you getting the charming sociopath, you're just not that lucky. She was talking about the probability that Koenig had happened upon a sociopathic murderer, but even still. Studies suggest that about 1 in 100 people is a sociopath, so while that puts this explanation within the realm of the possible, I'm not sure it puts us in the realm of the probable. Using a Psychology Today article that outlines the way to spot a sociopath, the so-called WEB rule for their words, your emotions, and their behavior— It seems that the most damning evidence against Calvin is how I was responding to him emotionally, infatuation and extreme sympathy. His behavior hadn't been great, but the article says to look out for extreme behavior that they do that 90% of people would never do. The ghosting sucked, but I don't know if it lives up to the 90% rule. Also, after reading that article, I'm not entirely sure that I'm not a sociopath, but that question I'll have to save for another podcast. At the risk of being obvious pants, I should say here that I've got an invested interest in this not being the case, if only because it negates the entire experience. If this were the case, and really I don't think the evidence supports this, it would have made some of the most important nights of my life, what, fictional? Delusional? In a weird way, it would leave me with less than what I started with, and as strange as this is going to sound, I think, I know, I grew from this experience. Resigning myself to this explanation is, for me anyway, just too costly, and frankly, too easy. Theory number two, he just wasn't that into you. This theory is one that I trotted out myself several times, especially during the moments of his silence. It had the same simplicity as the sociopath theory, but it allowed him to be less of a monster and more of just an asshole, which, frankly, I'm more comfortable with. My problem with this theory is that it doesn't account for any of the intensity— I'm willing to entertain the idea that I was bringing the majority of the feels, but this should have made it easier for him to disentangle himself, not more difficult. If he had been merely disinterested, then I want to believe that he'd eventually have let me off the hook, if for no other reason than I was probably really fucking annoying. Theory number three, he was seeing someone else. This is one that I've had to entertain somewhat fearfully, if only because, with several of the guys that I've really liked— The hitch in the giddy-up has been that they were involved at various levels with other guys when they met me. There's a tidiness to this that would explain a lot of the different aspects of Calvin's strange behavior. If this something had started in and around New Year's, got serious just after, it would explain why he wasn't able to come for Valentine's Day. It would have made his hosting me in April a pretty shitty thing to do to his boyfriend, but also I would have had to have massively misunderestimated him as a, you know, human being. And while I misunderestimated something, I choose to believe that it was not the very core of his character. Call me a romantic, if you must. The three Fulbrighters and I rolled back into Glasgow three days after we rolled out. The full coverage auto insurance I'd gotten for our car ultimately not needed, though certainly appreciated. We were plunged into the midst of the rest of the Fulbright crew, which was downright pleasant. Having the meeting was good in that we were busy enough that I couldn't be disconsolate. It was bad in that we crisscrossed Glasgow, passing Calvin's apartment at least two or three times. I kept thinking, wishing, I'd get a glimpse of him, but I never did. The hotel where Fulbright had put us up was right around the corner from Sleazy's, where we went one night, though I avoided the White Russians. After a couple of drinks, a few of us, specifically Bill, Nathan, David, and I, headed downstairs to the dance floor and, if I do say so myself, danced our asses off. If I'm not mistaken, it was a Wednesday night. We were lost before we even began What we started began What we started oh, 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 we've compromised it all Did I say the only thing that I owe 
The next night, I ended up going for a pint with a couple of Fulbrighters at King Tut's of all places, and it was there that I got my final working scenario for what had happened from one of my fellow Fulbrighters, a guy named Joel. Because I couldn't, or can't, shut up about it, I ended up telling him the whole Calvin saga. He sat there thoughtfully for a moment after I'd finished, and then said, Well, I can see why a guy who isn't out to his family might be nervous about dating someone who has a podcast about his dating life. It seemed maddeningly obvious in the moment, and the fact that I had sort of missed it smarted. I don't think the lesson is quite that literal, I guess, but here's why I've come to think of it. Scenario number four. It was all too much. For my money, this one best accounts for Calvin's hot and cold attitude and for the vitriol of his final message, but it also feels like the most empathetic explanation, the one that allows him to remain the most human. When we met, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Yes, we had a romantic setting, and it was somewhat based on a chance encounter. Yes, there was novelty and narrative and all the other things that churn out dopamine. But also, it was just magic. The universe is a weird, twisted place, but sometimes it turns out pure fucking beauty, and that was one of those moments. Now, I can see how we both got carried away pretty fast in the aftermath of that first date, but the real hiccup started happening when I tried to formalize plans for Calvin to come to Brighton. I don't know what he'd been thinking when he'd declared, readily I might add, his interest in coming to Brighton, but something about actually making the plans to go got stuck. Whether this had anything to do with his parents, I have no real idea, but at the very least, if he was taking a solo trip to Brighton, he would have had to tell someone what he was up to, and I guess I've just come around to the idea that that was the heavy lift that he wasn't quite able to make. There are other ancillary tendrils here, too. I can see how making a go of it with me would have meant, or felt like it meant, giving up a certain measure of his youthful abandon, for lack of a better term. He was a freewheeling, free-fucking, Wednesday-night-dancing 25-year-old. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see why a potentially emotionally intense relationship with a 32-year-old American might seem like a bit of a tall order. And yet, I'm going to be wildly optimistic here and believe that, on some level, Calvin had some kind of feelings for me. He could never send a text that said, listen, it's just not going to work out, because, on some level, he didn't want to accept that it wasn't. He never said he didn't like me or that he wasn't into me. Instead, he said he didn't want to be in it or a part of it. All right, I can hear you all rolling your eyes through my podcast microphone, and I'm the first to admit that this is absolutely a generous read. The cold, hard truth is that I will never know what happened there for sure. And if I'm being completely honest, there's a romantic, masochistic part of me that has trouble accepting that our paths are forever separated, though there's another part of me, a growing part of me, that is coming around to internalizing the idea that we may not. The last day of the meeting in Glasgow, we had some time to kill before we all hopped on trains and fled the city. It's possible that you may not approve of this, a few of my friends haven't, but coming to Glasgow and making no attempt to interact with Calvin felt... It felt too easy. It made me feel pathetic. It made me feel like a pushover, and it made me feel like Calvin got everything he wanted and I got nothing. It also, to a certain extent, let his gaslighting dismissal stand as the final word on the matter, and like, fuck that noise. So I popped into a sports direct, grabbed a little something, and sat in a cafe and wrote out the following letter to Calvin. Dear Calvin, I can't imagine that you thought that that last message from me would be it, so hopefully this doesn't come as too much of a surprise. But if you've learned anything about me throughout this whole thing, I bet wordy motherfucker is probably in there somewhere. But I get the sense that my being a writer is one of the things you don't like about me. So one, I'll keep this short. And two, this isn't the beginning of a long emotional process. This is it. No dragging it out, as you put it. This is it. I can't say it will be fun, but it will be done. First things first, you've been kind of a dick. Quick side note, I put a few of these sentences in double height, fearing that he wouldn't read the letter, hoping these few phrases would jump out at him. I suppose graphic design is a thing even when you're writing hyper-emotional letters. I don't say this to make you feel bad, but because I need you to know that I've been hurting through all your silence. I've now had to get over you at least three times, which, aside from exhausting, is just frustrating. 
If at some point you'd had some clarity where you knew you didn't like me slash didn't want to see me again, I wish you would have told me. In fact, you still haven't said that you don't like me, but whatever. If you find yourself caught in this situation again, do the guy a kindness and a mercy and just tell him. Save him some time and some pain. The question, of course, becomes, why did I stick around? Especially when you were treating me so poorly. Because I love you. I sort of muddled this in Glasgow in April, but by the time I got back to Brighton, I knew it was true. And rather than making things more complicated, it made them easier. None of the little stuff mattered. I was in for everything, for your bad communication or your weird and unnecessary self-consciousness and anxieties. I didn't want only your good parts, not your bad parts. I wanted the whole thing. Your last message to me stung, which I can only imagine was on purpose. I have theories as to why my being a writer and living in stories gives you pause. And I do get caught up in fantasy a bit. It's kind of hard not to when the real thing, and I think you and I had a real thing, is so elusive. But your comment about my wanting a story you didn't want to be in couldn't have been more wrong. The only story I wanted to be in was one with you in it. That was one of the liberating aspects of realizing I was in love with you. So little else mattered. Staying in the UK, going back to the US, didn't matter as long as I got to be with you. Make another podcast, give up on being a writer. Who cares as long as I got to see you every night. You made me so happy that I could have seen my life, our story, going in a million different directions, and they'd have all been great. And listen, I get that there are a million different reasons why we didn't make sense. What hurt so much was that you never gave me one. Ultimately though, it doesn't really matter because I still love you, even now, and probably will always have a spot for you in my heart, if not in my bed or my life. But please know you can always reach out to me. I bear you no ill will. I hope you find happiness somewhere with someone and I hope that you'll be able to think of me fondly at some point. You're a good man, and I hope you can accept that someday. Probably always, Charlie. P.S. Tell your family you're gay already. If you love them, they deserve to know. And you'll feel better, I promise. I folded the note and stuck it in the sports direct bag, wrote his name and apartment number on the bag, and hung it from the knob of the front door of his building. In the bag, with the note, was an American football. Like I said up top, I had a lot of sprawling thoughts in the first draft of this, and while they were probably helpful for me, I don't know that they were all that useful for the rest of you. I dissected Calvin's last message into its elementary fragments. I enumerated the things I would have done differently with foreknowledge and a time machine. But the upshot was that all of this was crowding out the more important points I wanted to make. I've sort of reduced these down to three takeaways that I think are the biggest ones. The first is really a question. What do we owe each other? I'm going to talk about this in relation to dating, but I think it's a question that we can ask of all of our relationships. What makes it so tricky when it comes to dating is the speed with which we go from strangers to intimates. It becomes even trickier when this transformation happens at different rates along different spectra. One might go from stranger to intimate on a physical scale very quickly, but never really become much less than a stranger on a social or emotional scale. This might actually be the starkest on an app like Grindr, where in the span of a very short amount of time, you can say hello, share your preferred sex activities, and exchange photos, some of them pretty damn intimate, and still owe the other person nothing other than silence to indicate your disinterest. In the world of Grindr, this wouldn't even amount to ghosting, it's just common practice though one that I do what I can not to live by. Where it gets tricky is when the stranger to intimacy change happens on other scales too. I went from feeling like Calvin was a stranger to an emotional intimate so fast I should have gotten whiplash. In fact, that was probably part of what fueled the attraction. I had felt so in sync with Calvin, the chat, the senses of humor, the feeling that I could share anything with him, that when the first real ghosting came about, the Valentine's Day ghost, while it hurt, I could sort of trace the contours of the situation with my fingertips. Even though I felt as though he was an intimate, I could see how he was regarding me as a stranger. The second ghosting is less defensible, obviously, but it's still a question I ask myself. Did he owe me something more than a hard silence followed by a final lash of rejection? 
I think we can all agree that he probably did, and if you don't, I'd be fascinated to hear from you. I think one question I've asked myself a lot since was, did I owe him something more? I don't mean this glibly, but was his request for me to, quote, leave it after his friend died the final word he had apparently intended it to be? Was it code for, this just isn't going to work out? This seems far-fetched, but maybe he really thought that that would be sufficient for me. A tricky thought for me to swallow, but again, I thought of us as intimates, and maybe he still thought of us as strangers. But getting to the real heart of the matter requires a slight tweaking of the question at hand. What if we ask not, what do I owe this person, but what can I give them? We spend so much of our energy trying to come up with the least of what we have to do for other people, you'd think our supply of time and feelings is so meager that being generous would endanger our very survival. Even if someone wanted to argue that Calvin didn't owe me anything more than what he gave, surely they wouldn't be so cynical as to say that he couldn't have given me just a little bit more. The final bit here, of course, is the question, was there something else I could have given him? Would my having left it after his friend died, having receded into the background quietly and obediently, have, in fact, been a gift? I'm not so sure. It would have been giving him what he seemed to want, but it also would have been reinforcing his shitty behavior. I wonder, sometimes, if there was some other third thing I could have given him, besides obedience or grand emotional disclosures. I do have one idea, but I'll get to that a little bit later. I got back from Glasgow feeling some kind of way, a little broken, a little bruised, a little battered, but also hopeful that maybe I was ready to move on. I had my ticket back to the US, and I knew that the only thing that would have possibly derailed my plans to repatriate had taken himself firmly off the board. I had two more months in the UK, and not dissimilar to the time right before I left New York and decided to just have a bit of fun, I tried to do the same thing in Brighton, which once again meant grindering. Again, because I most of the time used the app from home, I more or less had the same hand of guys in and around me to peruse for possible partnerships. As with Jack, though, when Phil popped up, he stood out. Phil's profile photo showed his face, which featured a big red bushy beard stippled with little wildflowers, making him look not entirely unlike a fawn. I messaged him a, hey man, how's it going, on Saturday morning, and got a response Sunday evening, just before I was heading out to watch the European Cup final football match. As is standard with Grinder, it's best to try and assess the other guy's aims quickly. What brings you on? I asked. I've been out of the loop for a long time. He replied. Just easing myself back in. You're the first person I've spoken to since I've been back. Who are you, by the way? I'm Charlie. You? I'm Phil. Charlie's a nice name. Thanks. I'll tell my mom next time I see her. Stuck out tongue emoji. We traded the basic infos of what are you doing here and what do you do for money. Phil described himself as a freelance model maker, an illustrator, and... Sometimes film extra. There was good patter right from the start. So you're a jack of all trades then? Master of none. Yep, that's me. <laughs> there are worse things. Yeah, I make a living. What more can you ask for? I mean, that's stupid. We could ask for lots more things. Lots more. What would you ask for? Out of all of the things. Sure. Not sure. There's a lot to choose from. The ability to make proper decisions? That feels pretty meta. <laughs> Not what you were expecting from a grinder chat. No, no, it's good. Meta is kind of a turn-on. We kept chatting after I got back from watching the football match and well into the next morning. Where's your profile pic taken? And have you not had any photos taken in places with high enough ceilings since? He asked, referring to a selfie I took in the mirror of a very tiny airplane bathroom. I'll post this pic on the site if you want a visual reference. It's in an airplane bathroom on a tiny plane, I replied. I've had a lot of really crazy smile pictures lately and thought that I should try something more serious. I see. Silly wacky is more my default, but people don't always want to sleep with silly wacky. Though maybe it was a good filter. <laughs> well, I've only seen that pic and I assume you're very serious and a bit too big for rooms. To be fair, my head is really large. The next day, we switched over to WhatsApp, where I first established that I was leaving at the end of August, and where Phil first discovered Serial Dater. Obviously, still unsure of how the podcast may or may not have affected Calvin, I was a little nervous about how he would take it. Whoa, 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 you have a podcast? 
So you finally got around to internet stalking me, huh? Uh, you have a lovely voice. So he was already listening to it. I listen to a lot of podcasts. You have a good podcast voice. Hopefully you'll still like me after you've listened to it. It'll be like meeting a celebrity. A disappointing celebrity. Is this podcast a one-series thing, or will it continue? Tricky question. You're not researching a new series, are you? Thus the trickiness of the question. The whole art-life mishmash. <laughs> no, it's okay. Is it? Yeah. You're allowed to say it isn't. No, I'm an artist too, so I understand. True. That's kind of a relief. In all of the many, many sweet things Phil would say to me, this is the one that stuck with me, a moment of true empathy. It was something I hadn't even known I needed to hear, that it was okay that I'd made a podcast about my romantic life. I'd gotten so used to the idea that any choice I made was ultimately the wrong one, that hearing someone, a potential suitor even, say that not only was the fact that I'd made the podcast okay, but that they could relate, felt kind of wonderful. We lived rather close to one another, a five-minute walk, but getting our first meeting scheduled took a bit of effort. What we ended up with was a quick tryst on a Monday evening right before Phil had to head up to London to be an extra in a commercial for a gambling website that was filming the next morning. We met at the small grocery store nearby, definitely a strange place to rendezvous for a first... Date's not quite the right word, is it? We chatted a bit as we walked back to my place, and we set a timer as we started making out, to ensure Phil didn't miss his train. It was brief, but pretty fun, and it gave us enough data to know that we had a sexual compatibility, and that we'd like to see each other again. Which we did. The next night, on Tuesday. Which for me and my uni friends was pub quiz night at the Martha Gun. The gun was conveniently just around the corner from Phil's place, so I stopped off at his afterwards, and stayed the night. On Wednesday, we went to a comedy show at a pub called the Caroline of Brunswick, and then went back to his. On Thursday, I went up to London to do research and to see friends up there. On Friday, he came over to my place. On Saturday, we went to see Ghostbusters, and then we spent the night together. On Sunday, he invited me over for a spag bowl, which is what British people call a bowl of pasta. On Monday, Phil left town for a week to go to a music festival, which allowed me to get my bearings a little bit. I suppose with reflection that neither of us were particularly looking for anything other than a hookup, but proximity, convenience, and a perhaps unanticipated compatibility had led us to something more. Over the course of this first week, we'd hooked up every night with the exception of the night I'd been in London. There was something incredibly easy about spending time with Phil, both in the logistical sense, there's something immensely pleasurable, especially after the planning debacles of the previous months, about asking someone if they want to hang out and them reliably and consistently saying yes, not to mention the fact that they live just a short walk away. And in just the regular sense, he was funny and it was easy to talk to him. We talked about art and creativity and the different projects we were working on, Even when we weren't hanging out, there was a pretty robust text chat going on. Phil was pretty industrious with his artistic endeavors and sent me images of costumes he was making to wear at the various festivals he was attending over the summer. Over the time we were chatting, he sent me photographs of himself as a pirate, a fox, a mermaid, a mouse, a fawn, and a Jedi. Amidst all this, he was drawing constantly, drumming up film work, and being a sometimes film extra. Oh, and the sex is pretty great, too. One side effect of all this, and I suppose this is something that one would file under good problems, was that I wasn't used to sharing a bed with someone. I've been a solo sleeper for the vast majority of my life, not by choice, mind you. And when there's someone else in the bed, especially if it's someone who wants contact while you sleep, that takes a bit of getting used to. First, there's the geometric reality of cuddling, which, 
If you haven't seen the video, John Stamos's Guide to Cuddling, where he demonstrates various cuddling positions with Bob Saget, then you're missing out. Advanced cuddlers may want to try the Stamos Swaddler. Nothing brings you closer to your lady. And if you sleep with your eyes open, the Stamos way, you get to stare at her face all night long. But even if you've got that sorted, you still need to figure out who sleeps on which side, how your different temperatures affect one another, is someone a snorer or a talker or a moaner in their sleep, how much light comes into the room, etc. Being able to have sex every night of the week was fantastic, but I was entering that state of being where I just wasn't getting very much sleep. Nor was I writing a whole lot. And it started to put the world a bit out of kilter. Of course, there were a couple of specters hanging over us as well. The first was the most obvious, that I was leaving in just over seven weeks. Not exactly a ton of time. This issue manifested earlier than it might have otherwise because I guess I just really have a hard time with plans and tickets and things. My mom had asked me if I wanted to fly back to New York for my dad's 65th birthday, which I decided to do, and I was trying to figure out my Heathrow strategy. The main London airport was very convenient for getting most places in the world, but was not so convenient to get to from Brighton. I was trying to decide whether I should leave Brighton the night before, or stay and spend an extra evening with Phil and have a slightly crazier mad dash to the airport the next morning. It turned out that Phil was going to be away during that time anyway, but it triggered a larger conversation, the start of which was Phil being very confused. Sorry, I hope I didn't freak you out. (laughs) Cute. Cute slash gross, but hopefully mostly cute. No, it's okay. I just hope you're not getting too attached before you leave me for America. It was a bizarre phrasing, to be sure, and it took me a second to formulate a reply. I'm trying my best not to, just trying to maximize the time that we do have. That sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? I'm trying to do it in a super fun and easygoing way. Is it working? It's okay. I understand. I've listened to episode five. This was a reference to the first season of Serial Dater, the episode where, once it became clear that I was going to be leaving New York, the guy I'd met who I really liked decided to cut things off. I'm still not sure whether Phil having this information was helpful or strange. Maybe it was both. Good, I said. Great. I told you I'm not looking for a relationship, though. I just came out of my first long-term one. This was another specter looming over our heads, and one which, possibly to my detriment, I never inquired further after. And next, may I present a classic example of brushing past a potentially awkward subject with bravado. (laughs) Was that back during our wild early grinder chats? Not that a relation was really on the table anyway, what with my upcoming abandonment. Anyway, I think we're basically in agreement on the underlying tenet. Spending time together equals good. No, I know. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. I don't want to get hurt again. I've edited the convo somewhat for clarity, but as with many chats, there's a certain equivalent of tape delay that can make it difficult to carry a thread, and easy to drop one if you so choose. We'd been talking about Phil's new haircut, which he sent me a photo of. By the time I thought about inquiring further into his hurt again comment, it felt like it was too little, too late. By the way, there should be a short phrase like YOLO or SMH that means stop, let's continue this conversation in person. SLCTCIP doesn't have the same ring to it. And then the conversation immediately ends and is not resumed until both parties can be in the same room, or at least can get on the phone. I suppose there was a third specter hanging over us, in a sort of parallel to Phil's unbeknownst past, and that was Calvin. In the great history of knowing you shouldn't do things and then doing them anyway, it was hard not to compare my feelings for Phil with my feelings for Calvin, which was not only an unfair fight, but an unjust one. And yet, I knew for sure that my feelings for Phil were not on par with my feelings for Calvin, and the way this manifested itself most readily in my mind was that I wasn't reconsidering my decision to leave Brighton at the end of August. There was a part of me that wanted to share my Calvin story with Phil and wanted him to share his story with me, but there was a certain level of exposure that I didn't want that would necessarily come with that. Telling Phil that I had considered staying for one guy but wasn't considering it now felt like too mean a thing to say. Even if we'd both readily declared that we weren't looking for a relationship, it was hard to spend this much time with one another and not think about it as a possibility. And then we hit a bit of a strange stretch where, with one exception during the last week of July, we only saw each other once, even as we kept chatting. 
I had an ongoing low-level anxiety about what we were doing, getting emotionally involved just as I was about to leave. But for my part, I felt like my departure sort of forced me into living in the moment in a way that I had found myself unable to do with Calvin. Though my imminent departure and our definite end date was a bit of a downer, it also meant that I didn't have to do any of the normal worrying about whether this was a forever thing or not. This was a gift the universe had given me for right now, and there was a definite freedom which came with that. Whether Phil also felt that freedom is uncertain. We both returned to Brighton on the Thursday before Brighton Pride, though I got in so late that we didn't see each other until Friday. We'd ended up making separate Pride plans, so that Saturday morning I slipped out of his bed and headed to the Brighton Pride Parade with my roommates. The Brighton Pride involved quite a lot of day drinking, which I think I was starting to get better at. Certainly I was learning how to ride the hydration wave to keep from being utterly destroyed. After the parade, we headed back to our house, but along the way we crossed paths with Phil, who I realized with a bit of a start none of my friends had ever met. It was an awkward street meeting, though it lasted long enough for me to give him a quick kiss. I mean, hello, it was gay pride. We chatted a bit throughout the rest of the day. I ended up on the beach with Nathan and Tara and a handful of other uni people, but I was fairly cooked by the time the sun set. I messaged Phil from my bed as he was heading back out to a party at a pub, trying to convince him to come over instead. At this point in the summer, I was less than a month out from returning to the States. I'd miscalculated the due date of my dissertation. I thought I'd given myself an extra couple of days between when the paper was due and when I left. But as it turned out, the paper was due the day before my departure. Reviewing me and Phil's texts, though, most of our conversations consisted of Phil asking what I was up to, and me replying that I was just working on the dissertation. It felt a little one-note, but it was also indicative of a kind of comfortable pattern that we'd fallen into. More often than not, we'd do what we could to arrange a rendezvous in and around whatever else we had going on. More often than not, we were successful. If anything, my biggest struggle was finding myself torn between the guy who I was for the first time in forever having something that vaguely resembled a relationship with, and the friends who I'd spent the whole year getting to know. Looking back on it, I think I struck the best balance I could between the two. I spent several nights a week with Phil, but also managed to squeeze in last-minute trips to Cambridge to visit another Fulbrighter, and to Exmouth to visit another friend who I taught English with in France. Which is to say things were going easy. I'd occasionally push to try and integrate Phil into my group of friends, if for no other reason than to try and maximize my time with everyone. But every time I'd offer, I would get a different version of the same response. I don't really want to socialize with new people. On some logical level, I knew that it wasn't anything to do with me, and yet I couldn't help but feel frustrated at continuously needing to choose between my friends and Phil. Plus, these weren't new people. These were my friends, pre-approved. Worse, I was starting to feel the tug of the new life that awaited me back in America. I decided semi-audaciously to move to Los Angeles, though it felt to me more like a matter of deduction. The two cities I would most readily refer to as home were San Francisco and New York, which also happened to be the two cities I didn't think I could afford to live in. Besides, I had been dreaming of moving to Los Angeles for years. Not in a step off a greyhound and get spotted by a studio executive kind of way, but in an eternal summer, endless Mexican food, and national television events ending by early evening kind of way. So it was hard for me to have the same sense of impending loss that Phil had, and not just because I was heading to LA. There was another reason lurking here, which was I was looking forward to trying to meet someone in a location where I was hoping to stay for a while. I hadn't really anticipated it being this much of a nuisance, but trying to meet a special someone in a country where I didn't have permanent residency was strange. It wasn't a barrier exactly, but maybe a series of very thick spiderwebs that I kept getting caught in. Though I had no evidence for it, I worried that this was one of the things that might have put Calvin off. That, at any moment, I'd vanish into an American puff of smoke, which I guess it's only fair to note I was doing to fill. Relocating to Los Angeles, a city I wanted to live in, in a country I was allowed to stay in, was the first time I'd be in a place I wasn't planning on leaving since, well, since I decided to go to graduate school. Due to my departure date miscalculation, I forced my university coursemates to integrate our end-of-term drinks with my going-away party, or what the Brits call a leaving do. 
which was convenient for me in that most of my Brighton friends would already be assembled anyway, but also left little room for error or other goodbyes. The night before my dissertation was due, I messaged Phil in a bit of a panic. I'm still not yet halfway through my footnotes and I've been working on them all day. Not sure how you're feeling about the drinks thing tomorrow. I understand if you don't want to come, but then we should probably do our teary goodbyes tonight. Sorry it's so crazy. It's a tricky one, he replied. I'd like to see you, but don't really want to hang out with a load of strangers. I'm sure they're lovely, just I get a bit anxious with a big group. And you'll want to speak to everyone. It was a fair point, beyond fair. And yet, I was still struggling, feeling guilty about not giving Phil the FaceTime he needed. In the end, I managed to sneak in a trip to Phil's house between dinner with my roommates and drinks with my uni-mates. I only stayed for an hour or so, a strange mirror to our first meeting, which also took place on a timer, but we managed to snap off a handful of selfies of the two of us. We look cute, even though there are circles under my eyes. We look happy. The next day, I printed out my dissertation, in triplicate, Turned it in, managed to snag a quick lunch with Phil before my course mates and I began what would end up being a rather excellent marathon drinking session. We started up at the university and made our way downhill, ending up eventually on the seafront, drinking cans of beer on the beach. It was a beautiful evening with a fantastic sunset, and having all of my university friends and my roommates together was pretty awesome, even if a little sad, considering I was leaving the next day. And Phil came too, which, reflecting back on it now, was really a tremendously generous thing for him to do. There was a hiccup of awkwardness when Sam, the oh-is-this-a-date guy from episode 2 showed up. I'd sent a pretty wide-scope invite to the leaving due. It was nice to see him, but also a little confusing. Where the hell had he been this whole time? If not as a date, then simply as a friend. But still, it was nice to see him again, even if it was just to say toodles. My goodbye with Phil was sweeter, but also more difficult. He left before the end of the beach party. In a way, I don't think I'd had a goodbye quite like this. A final face-to-face interaction that was definitively a final farewell, since a boy in Tallahassee had told me, let's be friends. I certainly had never had a mutual parting of ways where both of us still cared about the other. Phil got me a card, a Moomin Troll card, and included a sweet note. Continue what you do every night, Charlie. Try to take over the world, he wrote, a reference to Pinky and the Brain, which must have come up somewhere in there, I believe when he'd asked me, in his British accent, Why, what are we doing tomorrow night? As he headed away down the beach, I found myself almost wishing I hadn't combined our goodbyes with everyone else's. But, as with so many other things, there just didn't seem to be enough time. In retrospect, even in just writing out my experiences with Phil now, a year and a half later, I think Phil was more important to me than I even realized at the time. It was a model for what two people caring for one another could look like from the inside. Even if it wasn't quite the boyfriend experience I may have deep down been craving, nor really should it or could it have been. It was a kind of forced in-the-moment experience, a mandatory carpe diem because there wasn't anything else to seize. I'm not trying to pretend that it was just a tight seven and a half weeks of bliss. I spent my fair share of time worrying that I wasn't giving Phil what he needed, that it was a completely selfish, use him and lose him setup that would leave Phil worse off than when I found him. But in the end, I had to trust that both of us were entering the equation with our eyes open, knowing the parameters and looking to make the best of the time that we had. The next day, Nathan very graciously offered to drive me to Heathrow. It was all over far, far too soon, my year in the UK, and as much as I was eager to get to my new life in Los Angeles, I was already having some uncertainty about the quickness with which I was scooting out of Britain. There was so much I hadn't gotten to do. Visit Stonehenge, visit Dover, visit Wales. I never took the ferry from the UK to France, I had 15 euros in my wallet that I'd been saving for bread and cheese. But certainly, Calvin rested firmly in the center of my uncertainties, my regrets, my sadness. It was almost unfair, him taking up brain space when all these other people who were more actively upset by my departure were waving their handkerchiefs at me. Though, maybe that's always the way. 
We want the attention of those who don't want to give it to us, and we don't treasure the consideration of those who do. I suppose that this brings me to the second of my takeaways, and brace yourselves guys, because it's cheesy. Love. I mentioned in episode 5, in the wake of my dropping the L-bomb with Calvin, how stymied friends have been in their quest to try and define it. And I know that while I've been bouncing back and forth between more Western notions of romantic love and more Buddhist ideas about loving kindness towards all, possibly to my detriment, I think that maybe, in their best forms, they aren't quite as different as I'd previously thought. The Hindu greeting, Namaste, which has sort of gotten mocked as overbearing new AG woo-woo jargon, is pretty useful here. I see the holiness in you. Western romantic love, in its best form, I think, is a more intense and longitudinal version of that. Try it. Think about someone you love, and then think about those things that make them awesome, in the biblical sense of the word, worthy of awe. One of the weird upshots to all of this, for me personally, is that I've lost my capacity to hate. Let me right here say that this feat might be due in no small part to my place of privilege as a white American man, but I just can't find it in my heart anymore to conceive of anyone as sufficiently evil to hate, rather than pity or fear. This has been a particularly challenging new outlook to find myself saddled with, given the political climate of the years following my time in the UK. I arrived back in the US just a couple months before the 2016 presidential election. But I just can't muster it. Donald Trump is a sad, pathetic, dangerous man, but I don't hate him. Though it is possible that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell could be the exception to this rule. I got into an argument with my friend Michelle talking about the death penalty recently, and while I've never really been a supporter of it, she put the screws to me. What about Hitler? She asked me. What about Osama bin Laden? In the moment, all I could say to her was, shrug? I just don't think we should kill people ever? I tried to articulate my inherited ideas on transmission of pain and trauma, and how the death penalty just doesn't fix anything. But having had a bit more time to think about it, I think the crux of it is this. Dismissing people as evil, irredeemable, or disposable is easy to do when you've made them into a monster, a sociopath, or a terrorist. The hard thing to do is when someone you love even if it's just the generic loving-kindness extended to all beings, does something evil, heinous, or even traumatizing. And the reason it's hard is because none of these things exist discreetly within individual people. They run through all of us. As far as dating goes, I don't think this new perspective makes it any easier. It's not like I go on a first date now and say, oh hey, I see the holiness in you, let's get married. In some ways, it's made it harder, because rather than rely on gut instincts, I'm trying to be mindful of what the feelings I have for this or that guy are, attraction or compulsion, disinterest or fear. It's not a terribly easy way to date, but it does feel a little more honest. The last bit I have to deal with here is story. In his last message, Calvin's reduction of, I don't know, us, for lack of a better term, into a story felt as if he was calling it a fraud. And even worse, that somehow I was the one who had perpetrated it. And I might have been able to more readily dismiss Calvin's dig if it weren't for the other person from that year who cautioned against story and narrative, Tara Brock. Her beef with story and narrative is that it takes us away from the lived, embodied experience of life. We have it in our heads that we're supposed to follow a pre-established narrative. And when life actually decides to do something else, we don't like it. All these feelings, all these lines that I crossed, I've been lost for a long time. Darling, it's not the problem is that story isn't always something that's optional. As I've said since the beginning of this podcast, our brains create stories out of the events of our lives in order to give them structure and meaning and to make them accessible and comprehensible. And while I think Tara Brock is right, that allowing those narratives to dictate our actions and emotions leads to suffering, that the goal shouldn't be eradicating story altogether, nor can it be. The goal should be recognizing that A, they're constructions, B, they kind of have a life of their own, and C, they don't belong to us. In some ways, Calvin's accusation about my story hurt because 
Whether he liked it or not, it was his story too. Thinking he could opt out of it was as wishful as my saying, this is it, twice, in the letter that I left for him. A more accurate statement would have been, this is it for you, I have quite a lot of emotional processing still to do. Where I actually need to have a come-to-Jesus moment is with the notion of serial dater as an exercise at all. I've mentioned the anxiety I'd had when this or that guy found out about it, but in some ways, when they'd learned about it and then continued to date me, it was kind of a relief. At least they knew what I was capable of. I've often wondered if perhaps the title of the podcast was, as the British sometimes say, Too Clever by Half. I can't speak for the second series, but I definitely got a few dozen listeners the first time around who seemed to have found Serial Dater accidentally while looking for the Sarah Koenig podcast. But maybe the title associates me too closely with an actual serial dater. A Taylor Swift, John Mayer, Katy Perry type love em and leave em asshole who, as soon as they're done finished feeding on the tenderer parts of a guy's feelings, will drop them for the next shiny new thing. I sure hope that's not how I'm coming across. This maybe was the thing I could have given to Calvin. I could have offered not to write about him. Maybe it's too late in the game to admit, but to say that I didn't sense unease on Calvin's part about serial dater, perhaps more specifically than my being a writer, would be false. There were even moments where I considered offering it to him, but without him asking specifically for it, it seemed like too high a price to pay. What if he'd said, yeah, don't write about me, and disappeared anyway? I will say he's the only guy I've decided not to contact in advance to tell him it was happening. If I was going to take Calvin's statement that he wasn't a part of it anymore seriously, then I have to assume that he'd just as soon not know it was happening. In the end, though, while I still see the story as pivotal in my life, I don't know if I have another series of serial data in me. I think it asks a little too much of the sometimes unwitting participants, and having to spend time with me is a big enough ask. Still, the fact that Kieran, Robbie, Jack, and Phil have all greeted the project, if not enthusiastically, then at least agreeably, has been immensely heartwarming. Jack and Phil didn't even ask me to change their names. Their names are actually Jack and Phil. I've actually had an unexpectedly fantastic time revisiting my time with these guys. The big five, as it were. Kieran and his unbridled enthusiasm, Robbie and his humble sweetness, Jack and his wackadoo delight, and Phil and his deep sensitivity and caring. If nothing else, it had been massively encouraging to meet these men, these kind, intelligent men, these kind of ridiculously attractive men. Like, not to humble brag, but they're all really good looking. And then of course, there was Calvin. I wish I could say that I left my feelings for him on the tarmac at Heathrow, but I didn't. I mean, of course I didn't. I felt a lot of guilt and frustration and all sorts of other second arrow type feelings about how long I've carried my snuffed out torch for Calvin. But last year, reading Andre Asiman's Call Me By Your Name, I came across one section that took me off the hook a bit. After the whirlwind affaire de coeur between the narrator, Elio, and Oliver, his lover, has ended, Elio's father offers some counsel for the boy's broken heart. In the film, Elio's father is played amazingly by Michael Stuhlbarg, but The screenplay leaves out some of the more choice bits, so you're stuck with me, folks. Sorry. Elio's father says, Withdrawal can be a terrible thing when it keeps us awake at night, and watching others forget us sooner than we want to be forgotten is no better. We rip out so much of ourselves to be cured of things faster than we should that we go bankrupt by the age of 30 and have less to offer each time we start with someone new. But to feel nothing so as to not feel anything? What a waste. At a certain point, the thing I had to admit was that I had done what I could in the universe to try and get Calvin, well, really, to get all of them, to get all of you, to see where I was coming from, to try and present myself as clearly and as purely as I could. And, despite the wildly varying results, I had been, maybe not the best version of myself, but the truest one. Yes, all this dating has been, and maybe continues to be, fueled partly by fear and grasping and even the occasional fantastical story, but it has also been fueled by love, a desire to love and to be loved. In the end, there was nothing more for me to do. Well, nothing maybe, except make this podcast. To be honest, I'm not sure there's a more Charlie thing that I could have done.
did the last page I didn't even look I think I locked it in the cage Wrote a novel Cause everybody likes to read a novel Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. I've been incredibly lucky to have had over these several months editorial guidance and counsel from Olivia Wolfgang-Smith, Fatih Ahmed, and Anna Marquardt. I am still, now that I've finished, utterly floored at my good fortune to be able to have the music of tongues to help me tell my story. When I saw them in Glasgow in January of 2016, I said to Marina, if I end up doing another podcast, I would love to use their music. So this has been a literal dream come true. I know I say it every episode, but please go find their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Please check out their website, www.tonguesmusic.com, and follow them on all the social medias to stay up to date on gigs and new music. Phil, played by Will Dorenzi Martin, Calvin, played by Callum Barclay. Thank you to all of the actors I've had the pleasure of working with this season. You can find links to more of their work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. There you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SerialDaterPod. Email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people find it. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Special thanks to Betty Luttrell for her continued generous support, Thanks to Bernie and Adalia, and to James and Claire, and honestly, the way this week is looking, Charlotte and Nell, and Nathan and Tara as well, for letting me turn their homes into podcasting spaces. And thanks to Anna for her ongoing support throughout this project. Additional thanks to Emily Alford, CJ Hauser, Laura Smith, and David Fuller. Special thanks to all the people who let me use their names, many of them their real names, including Bill, Marina, Sarah, Irish Claire, Sarah, Garrett, Eli, Amy, Grace, Nathan, and Dave. A big thank you to all of my friends and family members who put up with me for the last year as I worked on this project, especially the Feet to the Fire accountability group, without whom I would have never gotten anything done. Another thanks to Tara Brock, not only for letting me use clips from her podcast, but also for providing a free and accessible resource in her talks and meditations. Learn more at www.tarabrock.com. One last sincere and enduring thank you to the U.S.-U.K. Fulbright Commission, whose mission to foster intercultural understanding between the United States and the United Kingdom through educational exchange, I have been honored to be a part of, even if this wasn't quite exactly what they had in mind. Finally, an incredibly huge and heartfelt thank you to Kieran, Robbie, Jack, and Phil for being open to the utter weirdness of this exercise. This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characteristics have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated.